Hi everyone, welcome to EFG's Beyond the Benchmark podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So today we have uh, our Chief Economist, Stefan Gerlach. Stefan, welcome. Thank you very much, Moz. Um, and uh, obviously, it's been a, a relatively tumultuous week on the uh, on both on the economy, tax cuts in the UK today, which uh, which uh, you know half of us are cheering, the other half are worried about, uh, as well as um, lots of central bank action this week uh, with the Federal Reserve, the SMB, and the Bank of England. So, just a huge amount to talk about. Uh, this week, yes. and of course, uh, we had a, the ECB um, not long ago either. So, um, so Stefan, thank you very much for uh, for joining and and helping us to uh, unravel all of the um, uh, all of the uncertainties that have been created over the course of the last uh, few weeks. So, um, so yeah, very very pleased. I think the timing of this podcast is also very 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 interesting. So. Um, uh, Stefan, let's, let's start with the Federal Reserve, and see they raised interest rates by 75 basis points this week, um, and with a very clear message, uh, I'll say unsurprising clear message um, uh, around um, their inflation-fighting credentials, and uh, as well as uh, uh, a, a, a very sort of unusually clear narrative around dot plots and and the overall direction but uh, um wanted to get your take on your views of the federal reserve and um uh, what were the kind of key considerations you think at the meeting so i think what the key considerations are 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 now uh, pretty clear inflation has been running uh, has been far stronger uh, far more, more protracted pickup in inflation and far more broad-based than the Fed uh, thought it would be last year. As you know, the members of the Federal Open Market Committee that sets uh, monetary policy uh, four times a year, September, December, March, and June, they are asked to provide their views for how the economy and monetary policy will evolve over the next, uh, next few years. And if we look at what they thought inflation would be, PCE inflation would be this year, um, then a year ago in September uh, uh, 2021, they thought PCE inflation this year would be 2.2%. By December, they have raised the, that number to 2.6%. By March this year, they had raised it even further to 4.3%. By June, to 5.2%, and now in September to 5.4%. So there is this, um, this strong pickup in inflation um, that the Fed is reacting to. It's, it's instructive to actually look at what they thought policy, the federal funds rate would be at the end of this year. So a year ago, uh, they thought it would be something like yeah, three-tenths of a percent. By December, they thought perhaps uh, nine-tenths of a percent. By March, almost 2%. By June, about 3.5%. And now they think it will end the year at around 4.5%. So this sort of gradual uh, upward shift in their expectations for inflation this year have been associated with a gradual upward shift in, in what they think the federal funds rate will be at the end of the year. So it's very clear. They are, they are responding to inflation being stronger, the pickup being longer lasting, and the, um, the breadth of the inflation sort of 
uh, spreading from just a few goods, energy prices and so on, uh, until now where it essentially is across the board. Mm. So um, obviously, um, I guess it's well documented with the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, you know, raising rates, and and I think at the um, uh, at the uh, kind of August meetings, um, it was very clear that the Federal Reserve was going to stay, you know, stay the course, and, and gave very clear messaging that they would, uh, you know, tackle, uh, you know, tackle inflation. Um, how do you see? I mean, the, the two, two big questions at the moment. How do you see, if you like, some of the forward-looking sort of um, indicators? You know, the most obvious, and even today, we, we, we see a five percent drop in the the oil price, for example. Um, um, you know, how do you see the sort of, I guess, the forward-looking inflation data over the next kind of six to twelve months? Obviously, very difficult to pick these out on a month-to-month basis. But um, you know, there's clear both anecdotal evidence as well as um, um, you know, traditional factors that we would look at, they're all suggesting that you know, inflation is coming down. I guess the narrative, and I think the concern for financial markets, is not that necessarily, but it's more the speed at which those inflation numbers will, will, will be coming down. And you know, what do you think the Federal Reserve is thinking with respect to you know, where inflation will be in 12 months' time or, or in six months' time? Because I, I think that's probably the, the key question right now. So, I mean, as you, uh, as you say, it's quite, uh, it's quite uh, clear that a number of variables, uh, forward-looking variables, suggest that inflation will be coming down. Most obviously, uh, gasoline prices that fell sharply in August have been continuing to fall in this month, of course, uh, driven by the fall in, in energy prices. We also see things like uh, used cars and trucks that have been a bit of a uh, odd, uh, odd piece of data in the CPI, having pushed up inflation rate. Uh, that effect is now much, much smaller than before. But if you do take the overall CPI, uh, which, is, uh, which is running at 8.3%, it was running at 8.3% year over year in, in August. And if you just sort of take out all of these things and just focus on two pieces, which is, first of all, shelter, which is almost exactly one third of the CPI, and food prices, which is much, more, uh, much smaller than so. Those two pieces together, uh, point, uh, or if, if those were the only pe- uh, pieces of inflation moving, we would still have 4% inflation in August. Right. So yeah. there are certainly things that are becoming less important and so on and so forth. But the fact is that we've had this gradual pickup in shelter uh, from about well, from about spring, late spring 20, last year, 2021, and as an, an increase in food prices, probably uh, uh, driven by the same factors, and in particular now more recently by the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. These pieces are just very large; they're very slow moving, and so on. So, so it's not just um, a few prices anymore. It really has spread across the whole CPI, and that will. That will take some time to uh, to sort of work mm. itself through. Mm. So, um, so that, I think that's quite clear. Sort of that uh, the shelter components, as we know, are very slow moving as well. So, you, you don't suddenly see you know, a thirty percent drop in rents or a thirty percent drop in, in the house prices. Uh, you know, they, they they tend to be much much more slow moving. So, you're probably going to see some stickiness. In the in the um, kind of housing uh, uh, market and, and rental market, 
certainly for the foreseeable future, I suspect. Um, and I, I guess also very hard to squeeze that out purely just by jacking up interest rates by by four and a half percent or two four and a half percent, which um, uh, they expect now. Um, so uh, you know, what do you think is the path going forward? So they're obviously traditional inflation inputs uh, are dropping out as you as you mentioned um, um, I guess the big question for many is when do they stop you know raising interest rates at these sort of 75 basis points clip I, I think now for um, uh, for the first of November meeting I believe you know, we've got 75 basis points of of rate hike and then we've got another 50 possibly 75 in the December meeting so these are pretty big, bold moves that um, um, that are obviously creating the fear for the bond market and the the, the uh, equity and currency markets. Um, um, you know, what is? Do you think they will start passing down some of that um, those those kind of bold hikes to kind of fifties and twenty fives towards the end of the year or or, or even next year? Or do you think they're just going to keep on going at the same pace? So uh, if you sort of start thinking about this, where you, uh, with the point you focused on, namely shelter, uh, uh, the, cost of, of, uh, the cost of living, that is responding to what we now see in the housing market. Mortgage interest rates have been picking up. The whole housing market is slowing. House prices uh, are slowing and so on. And as you mentioned, that will feed in very slowly into the shelter component. The shelter component, as you said, is very slow moving. It's very important. It's a third of the CPI. Um, Now, I think just maintaining interest rates will continue to uh, exert pressure on the housing uh, sector. And that will continue to exert pressure on the shelter component in the CPI. So my suspicion is that uh, sort of essentially maintaining interest rate at the current current level uh, um, will gradually filter through through to housing, to shelter. And that that will have a big impact. I mean, just just thinking about it here, I suspect the the shelter component Right now is 2.5 percent of, uh, of of the inflation rates. Uh, just waiting, I think, will mean that that component will be declining over time. So my suspicion is that uh, uh, there isn't really this need to uh, um, jack up rates by you know several hundred basis points more. I think maintaining relatively high rates for a while will lead uh, will lead this component to turn. And as you already mentioned, mm. energy prices have turned already. A number of other uh, uh, factors have turned already. So I suspect that uh, pushing up rates, uh, perhaps another hundred uh, or yeah, to four and a half percent, something like that, uh, and and just waiting, just keeping the rates mm. there for mm. for, for mm. nine or twelve months will will have mm. a very big impact. Yeah, certainly that's. Uh, Priced into the short end of the um, you know, bond market, and and obviously the yield curves are very inverted. So maybe the sort of the next component to this is probabilities of recession as a result of um, uh, you know these these high rates or higher rates. Um, um, 
And um, and indeed, if I look at the money market curves, they even start to now price and rate cuts by the end of next year or, or into 2024, which also seems quite premature, you know, given the usual MO of of um, 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 of, of central banks. You know, they tend to not to swing around rate hikes and cuts in in, in a relatively few months, which is what you know what money markets are telling us today. That indeed seems, seems to me quite reckless from an investor perspective uh, in terms of expectation. But, um, uh, you know, what are your thoughts around that? Um, you, you know, I, I guess, you know, very famously, whenever rate hikes have gone up, you know, uh, aggressively. And, and here I'm thinking about the 1994 episode uh, where we had um, you know, the tequila crisis or the Mexico crisis, uh, as well as, you know, Orange County at that time. Uh, I, I actually, funny enough, I only just started at EFG at that time as well. So, so, uh, so it's, it's it's always very ingrained in my memory that, that 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 particular observation. And then, obviously, the Federal Reserve then went through. Of course, interest rates used to be much higher then, uh, and then went through, through through many rate cuts over the subsequent couple of years. Um, but um, um, you know, uh, uh, many out there say, well, you know. Uh, Fed stops raising rates when when there's a credit crunch or or some sort of credit crisis or some sort of crisis that comes along, that forces the narrative away from them. Uh, and any thoughts around around that? Uh, have you studied that at all? Well, um, so I think you are uh, uh, absolutely right to highlight that central banks don't like to swing around with interest rates. And the reason for that is that uh, monetary policy on its own has actually very little impact on the economy. The reason monetary policy matters is because of the impacts on longer term yield, bond yields in particular, therefore mortgage, uh, uh, mortgage costs and so on and so forth. And if you swing around, if you move around monetary policy short term interest rates a lot, then the impact of changes in monetary policy on longer bond yields, you're going to mute that impact because market participants will say, well, here they go again. They're going to raise rates for a, little, for a while and then cut them back in six months' time. So, you know, if you think of the, the short-term interest rate sort of over the lifetime of a 10-year bond, that hasn't really, you know, that really hasn't changed very much. And therefore, long bond yields will, will start to disconnect from shorter yields. So they're very, very sensitive to... Uh, to the idea that in order to exert influence on financial markets, they need to, they need to, as uh, central bankers uh, tend to say, they need to adopt the sort of steady as she goes approach to setting, uh, to setting monetary policy. Um, so my sense is that, uh, is that they will do this slowly. Now onto this, and I think this is the key issue you raise here, the whole issue of a risk and recession and whether central banks perhaps even are, uh, would like to engineer a recession Right, uh, right now. Now, if you look at at, at bond spreads, many uh, commentators uh, say, "Well, we we tend to look at uh, the spread between ten-year yields and two-year yields." The Fed and some other investors say, "Well, we tend to look at the spread between ten-year yields and three-month yields." Now, if you look at which spread is most informative, then you find out actually it is neither. The piece that seems to be most informative is actually the spread between something like three three month yields and two year yields, and there's some recent research from the Federal Reserve that suggests that that is actually indeed a better indicator of recession risks um, or, or, or over time or in the past. Now that spread 
is positive now, mm. suggesting that actually the, the uh, term structure is not really pricing in a, uh, a recession. But, um, but as you know, um, you know, the term structure is very, very sensitive to economic, to economic news and changes in policy. And if the, as the Fed continues to raise short-term interest rates, it sort of continues to push up three-month yields and two-year yields uh, will respond not only on, uh, to expectations of Fed policy or actual Fed policy, but it will also respond to news from financial markets or from the, uh, from the real economy. So if uh, inflation, if um, recession expectations starts to take hold, that yield could move very, that yield spread could move very, very quickly. So I think that it looks good right now. Uh, look, I mean, right now it doesn't look like we will have a recession. The Fed is, uh, expects the unemployment rate to rise by four tenths of a percent over the next uh, year or two. And that's, uh, that's a very small increase for a recession. But these numbers are very, very sensitive to, uh, mm-hmm. to other uh, market news. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, very very good points. Um, uh, you know, there, Stefan. So you're certainly, as it, as it pertains to yield curve, um, obviously twos ten uh, inverted, two year thirty years hugely inverted. You know, things that we haven't seen for many many you know at least twenty years or so. Um, and obviously, financial market participants will, will naturally draw draw that up. Uh, but your point around three months and two years is obviously a very critical one. And I think if we certainly saw that inverted, then that will suggest that um, you know, probabilities of a recession certainly gone. But we're, 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 we're nowhere near that yet because, interesting enough, the two-year part of the curve is still moving up as, as, rates, have, as rates have gone up. So uh, that suggests that certainly the economy can handle it, you know, given where unemployment rates are at the moment uh, and the overall kind of direction of, uh, of the economy as well. Um, um, so t- t- two other sort of associated questions, which I think are quite important. The first is around um, a question that certainly we ask ourselves is whether the Federal Reserve, you know, has always been staunchly independent um, from, uh, from, uh, from government. But here we have, you know, Yellen or Chair Yellen, as she used to be known, you know, in the Treasury and uh, Powell in the Federal Reserve. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that always comes up in, in, in our minds is that you know, Powell only really started to move aggressively on rates when, um, you know, he had his confirmation hearings all, all done and dusted. You know, uh, that could be purely coincidental, which I, which I suspect uh, most people will say, or certainly the Federal Reserve will say. But I just wonder whether there is um, some... Uh, uh, you know, something to manipulation. And I think certainly uh, we certainly feel in the UK here that uh, manipulation or independence of the Bank of England has certainly been compromised certainly in the last 24 hours uh, in terms of actions that we've seen. Yeah, yeah. I think in the, in the case of the US, I would be, um, I would not be so worried because with this, the high inflation rates now are plainly a problem from a monetary policy perspective, but also plainly a first-rate political problem for the current administration. This is something that is not going to go down well in the midterm elections. Uh, so it is essential, I think, in the U.S. to make to make progress on uh, on lowering uh, in- inflation. Now, in the in the U.K., I think the situation is um, is 
is quite different. I mean, in the UK, you have much less history of central bank independence. Remember, this was something set up actually by the Labour government in, uh, in 1997 or in 1998 when they won power. They just very unexpectedly announced that the Bank of England would be uh, independent. Um, and there, of course, in the in the UK, we have almost a uh, a I wouldn't say conflict, but plainly the stance of fiscal and monetary policy are working at cross-purpose. The Bank of England would like to shrink its portfolio gilts by selling some at the same time as the UK government says will be issue large piles of gilts here uh, in, the, in the coming year. Uh, so there, I think you have a situation where, you know, a, a, you know, an immovable object collides with another immovable object. And actually, I think in that case, the Bank of England is more movable than the uh, than the Treasury. So I think the scope for something politically uh, caused tension are much greater in the uh, uh, in the UK. Uh, but here, of course, I should defer to to, uh, to your expertise <laughs> in this in this area. But looking at this as an outsider, you really worry: how will this work itself out, and what is the politics of this, and how independent will, in fact, the Bank of England uh, be? This uh, it is, a, you know, it is a, historically not a very independent institution. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Um, just for a fish off the Fed, and we talked a little bit about um, um, the Bank of England, and certainly some thoughts, uh, certainly over the last uh, twenty four hours. But on the um, on the Fed Reserve, obviously, um, Fed Reserve is, if you like, the world's bank. Um, in, in, in world central bank in many terms. And I think um, the fact that the dollar is so strong probably just reinforces the, um, the view that um, the Federal Reserve is still the central bank to follow and, and still the central bank with the greatest uh, credibility. And I think um, you know, the fact the dollar has strengthened so much, even with inflation uh, you know, at 8% plus, you know, seems to suggest that, that, you know, that still remains very much the case. Um, and, and of course, you have a lot of experience in this area, particularly in, during the kind of Asian financial crises um, that we saw in the mid-90s and, and, and late-90s um, and the impact that the U.S. rates had on those economies. Um, and, of course, we've seen that, uh, you know, more recently in 2015 and, and uh, sorry, 2013 and 2015 and 16. Um, um, what are your thoughts around what this sort of tightness of policy plus a strong dollar has on emerging markets, uh, you know, in this environment? Because it certainly leads to much more tighter policy there as well. Yeah, I think these are very good. Uh, these are very good questions. I mean, as you put it, the Federal Reserve is sort of the central bank to follow in many ways. So that is partially true for other uh, central banks as well. If you are governor of some central bank, and you're not really an expert on on monetary policy, or or uh, you don't know exactly wh- what to do. You know, you can hardly go wrong by saying, "Well, the Fed is tightening monetary policy because inflation in the U.S. is high. Inflation here at home is also high, and it seems to me that we should we also need to tighten monetary policy." That is an argument that many people would um, uh, would uh, would buy. So I think when the Fed changes tack and starts to tighten or relax monetary policy, there are lots of central banks across the world who are sensitive to that message. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to sell a change in monetary policy if you can say 
and the, the Fed is doing the same, uh, the same thing. So that tends to strengthen the impact of Fed policy. And also, of course, the exchange rate sort of works in the same way. The Fed tightens monetary policy. The dollar appreciates. Currencies abroad depreciate. And those central banks says, look, our currency is depreciating. We got we to raise interest rates too. Now, um, on top of sort of that mechanism, uh, as you say, tighter policy in the U.S. does have an impact. We know that from the Asian financial crisis, the Mexican crisis, and a number of countries in emerging markets economies that, you know, when the U.S. monetary policy is quite expansionary, funds start to look at a global search for higher yield, funds uh, sort of move over to emerging economies, and then when the U.S. tightens monetary policy, well, many investors start moving the funds back to uh, the U.S., partially because they think that's a better thing, but also because they start to worry about the exchange rates of these emerging market countries or political developments in these emerging market uh, uh, countries. Um, so indeed, Fed policy tends to have a very large impact on emerging economies. And you could say, well, the Fed should worry about this. And of course, they do worry about that. But remember that the mandate of the Federal Reserve is domestic. Um, so the Fed can respond to these developments to the extent that it slows uh, or lowers inflation in the U.S. and lowers economic activity in the U.S. And of course, it does that. But that effect, I think, is much more indirect uh, than the direct impact on emerging uh, economies. So I, I feel that the Fed is, uh, as you say, it is a bit of the world's central bank, but it views itself as being just that one domestic central bank among many others. And there's a tension there. And sometimes that dis- uh, tension is resolved in ways which is not, um, not that great. Mm, no, exactly. And certainly does create, create uh, issues uh, around the world. Uh, so let's uh, move on to Europe um, and, um, and um, you know, essentially what we think um, is happening there. So obviously we had uh, a rate hike in uh, from the SMB. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that um, uh, now. So they obviously raised the rate um, and maybe some mixed messages that came out subsequently. <laughs> Yes, I thought uh, I think we were all a little surprised by the what the S and B did. They came across as being slightly dovish. They raised interest rates by seventy five basis points. Uh, now, uh, to me, I think when you think about what central banks will do with monetary policy, there are two things that are there are important. First is just sort of the inflation pressures and the and the state of the of the of the economy. Uh, and there, for instance, uh, inflation pressures in the U.S. are very are very strong, but the U.S. economy also seems to be quite strong. Um, so, so that's the first factor. The second factor is where do you start from? Now, if you think of Switzerland, they actually still had negative interest rate uh, uh, the day before yesterday. Uh, and uh, so if you, if you have interest rates at minus uh, uh, 25 basis points, Inflation in Switzerland is running at three and a half percent. It hasn't picked up picked up so much in Switzerland, um, because actually Switzerland uses not uh, does not use much um, natural gas and oil and coal. The fraction that constitutes of of the of domestic energy supply is very low in international perspective. Switzerland uses a lot of nuclear power, but also a lot of water power uh, and hydroelectric power. Uh, and that means that you haven't sort of had these effects at all in the same way. So, so inflation at 3.5%, interest, interest rates at minus uh, 25 basis points, 
I think many central banks would say, well, we need to get interest rates back to something more more normal. Our inflation objective is zero to two percent. Uh, we should probably we should probably have uh, the interest rate a bit above the inflation rate. So let's push them up from minus a quarter of percent to let's say percent and a half or two or something like that. Uh, so from that perspective, I would have thought the SMB would take one large step now. In particular, the SMB only meets four times a year. Most of the central bank meets eight times a year. So the SMB just met. It, it will meet again in December, in the middle of December, at the same time as the ECB and the Fed meets again. But the ECB and the Fed also have a meeting, uh, have meetings at the end of October and early November, which the SMB does not have. So one would have thought with the ECB and the, and the Fed jacking up interest rates at 75 basis points, you would expect the SMB to do that plus something extra to compensate for the fact that they can't do anything in October, November. Uh, but they didn't. Uh, and there was this unfortunate uh, sentence in the, uh, in, the pre- in the press release afterwards that said that effectively further increases in interest rate could not be excluded which I think led many people to think that, in fact, uh, they may not raise interest rates further. And that was a bit of a surprise, I think, to, to markets. Now, that appears to have been a miscommunication uh, uh, by the SMB. They have used that sentence before. But, of course, right now, people are much more uh, are staring much more uh, in a much harder way on, on the, their official announcements. Um, so yes, SMB was uh, didn't move rates uh, that strongly. I suspect you have to see another seventy-five basis points later this year. It's just hard. It's hard to see that they will uh, that they will uh, not want to deal with the pickup in inflation. They have this superb uh, record of, of of low inflation, partially because they have always historically been willing to tighten policy when when needed. So I suspect that will that will happen again. Mm. And I think. Uh, I always wonder whether making decisions quarterly means you you get away from the noise <laughs> that a monthly or a or a two monthly meeting would actually do, um, and uh, you know you just kind of wonder whether uh, you, you know you, you you got caught up in the whole sort of melodrama that a monthly meeting cycle brings. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. It, it's preferable not to meet so frequently. But also in Switzerland, there is another uh, issue. Swiss statistics are very poor, and a large number of data series are actually only available quarterly. So if, since you don't have the same flow of macroeconomic data, you, don't, it's, it's, you wouldn't have enough material, perhaps, necessarily to, uh, to respond. Uh, yeah. But I think also, I mean, it does, as you suggest, it does... Uh, uh, also signal that the SNB, you know, I wouldn't call it them an absentee landlord, but there's a little bit the thing we shouldn't be too involved with this. Financial markets are moving up and down, you know, the data comes every quarter, central banks shouldn't be playing around all the time. Let's just, we, we reset it quarterly. And uh, and of course, if something happens, you can they can respond in between. But I think philosophically, they are a little bit in this space. We shouldn't be too involved in, in markets, uh, we shouldn't steer markets too much. Uh, we, you know, we give it a nudge four times a year, and uh, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, so let's move on to the Bank of England uh, um, uh, you know, today. So obviously today, uh, you know, said uh, half of the office is only cheering, given that they've cut uh, uh, taxes 
uh, both uh, the base rate one uh, percent from twenty percent to 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 nineteen, and then we're cut on the top rate of tax from forty five down to forty, uh, as well as um, taking down national insurance by you know one half percent. So a pretty big giveaway budget. Um, uh, that you know something that we haven't seen. I, I think today, uh, I think the statistic I saw that they haven't seen such tax giveaways since the early 70s which uh, apparently didn't end very well but uh, the um the uh the the volatility of policy is just quite extraordinary um and uh obviously the list trust government is certainly stamping his authority and essentially what's happened is that the pound has obviously collapsed you know gone way to to levels we haven't seen since the early 80s uh against the dollar uh, as well as um gilts and and here i think stefan you and i need to congratulate ourselves that 10-year gilts are now trading above u.s 10-year treasuries in yield terms today which uh, we haven't seen for quite some time um, and, uh, you know, something that you and I talked about even a couple of years ago, that this is uh, an observation that we would eventually see. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, what are your thoughts around that? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, this is uh, the pickup in yield. So I haven't followed it so closely today. So, so you are much closer to the market than, than I am. But it is a you know you announce a fiscal package and interest rates responded that way. It's a, it's a, when it does happen, but it doesn't happen often in advanced economies. And if you just ask yourself what is, what is the extra cost to the treasury from having to pay more interest on the outstanding stock of public debt, this is a yeah. This is a very costly giveaway to the UK Treasury, and it's just very difficult to, to, to imagine that the, unless rate, rates come down, uh, you know, this is a this is a bit of a car crash with reality. I think. Mm. Well, I think uh, also having QT at the same time. Yes, really indeed, help, indeed, you know, indeed, you and know. this would be very difficult. And I, I can imagine the the Chancellor saying to the Governor. Was suggesting to the governor this might not be the right time for QT, um, yeah. and you know, it's I don't it's uh, yeah it's uh, it's uh, it's plainly a crash between fiscal and monetary policy that we are experiencing in the UK, and it's hard to guess what's uh, how this will resolve itself. Yeah, no, exactly. I think what I find quite fascinating is that you know one can always look at. Fiscal policy is very much a supply side, you know, issue in terms of economy, um, and versus monetary policy is very much trying to sort of quash the demand, particularly for commodities and 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 cut inflation. Um, and um, uh, you know, th- th- there are if you like two levers to pull, but certainly in this case, it, it seems now that you know the Bank of England's fifty basis points just looks relatively pale. Uh, to oh, yes. compared yes. to 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 what um, you know, they should have done, so you know, clearly interest rates, uh, you know, will be going up, um, you know, pretty aggressively over the coming over the coming months, um, certainly from the Bank of England. And I think yeah. you, know, you and I also discussed actually this time last year when the Bank of England did signal that they were going to raise interest rates, and they didn't, and they blinked, which I think was, as it turns out, uh, and and. You know, messed up on the communication, which uh, clearly was a was a, was a big error uh, at that time. 
I think that was a big uh, that was a big mistake. I mean, if you think of it from the Bank of England situation now, more expansion of fiscal policy is going to push up inflation further. The Bank of England has to offset that by tightening monetary policies. You see higher, even higher interest rates, uh, uh, and perhaps that may be what the what the bond market is responding to this expectation that this will yield, uh, in, you know, a couple of years of higher interest rates, you know, in, uh, or tighter monetary policy, and therefore higher interest rates by the Bank of England. Yeah, this is. Um, yeah, this is not, uh, I don't think this is going exactly the uh, the right way. I mean, we have discussed you and I a number of times how we are worried that the UK may become more inflation prone after Brexit. The mechanism being that it's not so easy to, to import uh, cheap foreign workers in a business cycle boom. Uh, so instead, you will see it more of an increase in wages and wage costs uh, and more pretty, you know, for, for UK labor. Uh, and... That mechanism, I think we've seen some of that mechanisms already, and I think markets are maybe worried that this combination of very expansionary fiscal policy uh, and this focus of more growth in the UK economy, uh, they could reasonably say, well, that implies a greater demand for labor. And if we can't get foreign labor to come, cheap foreign labor to come in, well, we're going to see more, and we're going to see higher wage, wages, wage negotiation away. And wage pressures and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. That is not a pretty sight. In the 1970s, as you know, we had this uh, one reason that was such a difficult uh, episode to get out of was we had large increases in um, inflation that triggered large increases in wages, and we had this sort of spiraling effect. And there is that could return. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so let's um, pivot now to the um, to the ECB uh, very quickly. Um, your thoughts around the ECB? I guess less exciting compared to all these other central banks uh, and the, and the, and their activities. So what what are your thoughts around the ECB? So I think the ECB is in a very difficult uh, situation. We have spoken about that you and I a number of uh, a number of times. Um, when Mario Draghi was president, uh, he took strategic views about the economy and decided what he thought would be the right thing uh, for ECB policy, designed the right ECB policy and pushed it through the governing council. And uh, perhaps there was an element of a bull in a China shop, uh, you know, but... Uh, uh, ECB responded strongly to a number of developments. I think Madame Lagarde uh, seems to want to lead a little bit from behind. She is more, she's much keener to build a consensus in the governing council. Um, but that is hard to achieve, I think, now. It's, uh, uh, when you have so many policymakers, I think it will unavoidably be, unavoidably be an element of sort of herding cats. And uh, you really need a strong, firm uh, president, I think. But a strong president really needs to have a strategic view about what she or he wants to achieve and what policy should be. And I, don't, I think President Draghi did have that, but I'm afraid Madame Lagarde does not. Uh, so I can't help feeling that there are a bit adrift. And it is never a good time for a central bank 
to be adrift, to, to appear to be adrift in a situation where there are very serious issues uh, uh, for, for them to deal with. In, in Europe, you have this very high inflation, but you also have a situation where uh, you know, economic, the economy, parts of the euro area economy is very, very weak. A large part of that is due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and energy prices and gas prices rising very sharply and just the physical quantities of, 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 uh, of, uh, uh, of, of gas, the quantity of gas available may, may constrain economic growth and trigger a, a recession. And some of that is, of course, just a number of countries in the euro area still haven't been able to sort out their, their structural problems and, and so on. So the euro area, I think, is in a situation where it, you could see a very deep recession in parts of it, uh, and it's not. It's that's not easy to deal with as a central bank. Yeah, I, I suspect the one thing that I, you know, that I think about since the beginning of the year, um, not not just in Europe but in the UK and other economies, the starting point of the economy was not so terrible. So, what do I mean by that? So. You know, one of the things that I always look at is what are the excesses that have been created, you know, say the previous four, five to six years that you know, cause a problem. Um, and, you know, we had relatively healthy balance sheets, you know, consumer balance sheets. We had relatively healthy corporate balance sheets as they just refinance when rates were very, very low. And we were appearing into this, if you like, um, kind of post-COVID you know, um, period where people were looking to go and spend and, um, you know, ex- use some of their excess savings and so on and so forth. Clearly, a lot of that has been soaked away by, uh, you know, high energy costs. Um, and that certainly has had, you know, bigger, in- uh, a huge influence. Uh, and, of course, Russia, Ukraine uh, also had a huge influence on the um, uh, on the European uh, economy and the psychology of the consumer. But, but you know, one of the things I always think about when I'm thinking about, you know, what is your start point, you know, in a downturn, if you like, or start point. And, and here, I don't think that we had kind of big excesses that we would normally have, um, you know, at a peak of a cycle. And, um, and I, I certainly something, we, again, you and I have discussed quite a lot. You know, I always feel there's a chance of making a mistake with, the hugely high policy rates, um, et cetera, that that creates, um, uh, you know, is a, is a challenge for financial market participants to try and sort of un, un, unparcel. So I was just wondering whether, you know, any thoughts, again, in the context of the ECB or even any of the other central banks, um, so, so, uh, uh, how do you feel about that? So I think this is a very good point. I mean, uh, the, um, the recession of the global um, financial crisis, we had you know, an overextended financial system. And that was a difficult thing to deal with because you need to sort of sort out the financial system. And the way to do that was to make sure that financial institutions turn profitable and get, get rid of uh, bad loans and, uh, and so on and so forth. And, um, uh, and we don't really have that situation. There is no obvious situation. The one thing which is obvious is the German energy policy haven't been great. That's what we've learned now. Uh, but that's a bit of a revelation. Um, that was not at all anticipated. And in fact, perhaps one of the interesting aspects of this crisis is that the core of the euro area, Germany in particular, 
might be very or German and Austrian, so might be very very strongly uh, exposed to uh, the absence of gas next year. We have to see what what the winter will look like and, and so on. So perhaps the focus is more on the core than in the than in the periphery uh, at this time, and there is no obvious financial. Uh, mistake or or, monetary, or or fiscal policy mistake right now uh, it's just much more a, a energy policy not thinking ahead uh, and so on which is, so so it's it's an entirely new situation mm-hmm. and uh, it'd be interesting to, to see how policymakers will 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 deal with this mm-hmm. well absolutely I think it something is very interesting. Well, Stefan, um, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today. I think it's super interesting as always. Lots of snippets for us to to think about. Um, and, um, uh, you know, clearly we're in a relatively volatile period for monetary policy. Hopefully we look for calmness to start to appear over the coming weeks and months uh, in, in monetary policy. But uh, as I say, May you live in interesting times, and certainly interesting times uh, are upon us at this point in time. Certainly better as an economist than investment strategist is is my only (laughs) comment I would make at this this point in time. So, again, thank you very much, Stefan, for for, for joining us. Thanks very much, Moss. It's always fun to chat about the uh, central banks and to speculate what they may or may not do and also how they see the situation because very often central banks see the situation in a very different way from what most casual observers uh, would. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an unusual business. So anyway, uh, thanks very much. I enjoy that. Uh, thank you. Uh, so uh, that wraps us up for today. Um, and... We will again speak to you next week. Thank you.